If I'm Kenny, uh, one of the elders at Grace Fullerton, and I was just here a couple of weeks ago and I'm back. Uh, some of you thought, oh man, we just had him two weeks ago. Um, some of you maybe are happy to see me. So either way, um, I'm here. Great to see you this morning. It's packed in this service. I know 9.30 service is usually full. It feels extraordinarily full, like almost every seat is full in here. Um, which is making me wonder, true confession time, how many of you normally come to the 1115 service, but you're here because you got to get home and make some wings or nachos or something? <laughs> uh, I think it's a Super Bowl pushing in here. It's okay. You're welcome here anyway. Uh, uh, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I'm not a sporty guy. Um, I like to play sports, but I'm not, I was never been, never been a spectator sport guy. In fact, our youth group kids uh, who are older now and grown at Grace uh, probably know this, but for years, my goal was to get to Super Bowl Sunday without knowing who the two teams were in the game. And back before social media, it was actually possible. I actually did it a couple of years. I'd get to the Super Bowl, turn it on, and there I would learn the teams. But anyway, I know who they are now, the Broncos and the Panthers. And I didn't know the Panthers was a team in the NFL until this morning. So who's going to win? Okay. So we're all in agreement then. Okay. Um, But uh, for me, Super Bowl is more about the commercials than the, the actual game. Uh, creative, funny, humorous commercials. And so I'm sure we're going to see some of those today. Uh, so uh, as we start here, I'm going to talk about a, a series of commercials here that I think are, are quite clever. And I actually think provide um, maybe a framework for us to think about our, our text this morning. So uh, big challenge to see if we can do this. I don't know if you've seen the Geico series of commercials, the It's What You Do commercials. I don't know if you're familiar with some of these. There's a whole bunch of them and they always have the final tagline, the announcer, it's what you do. Let me explain. Here's one, my favorite one recently. Oh, this is me right here, by the way. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this one, but the dude on the right, he's like this Jack Bauer sort of James Bond kind of character. And it starts off with action music and he's racing up the scaffolding on the outside of a skyscraper and bad guys in suits are running after him with guns and chase him up onto the roof of this high you know, skyscraper. And right as he gets to the roof, this helicopter comes up and they've got machine guns. And so there's machine guns on the helicopter and there's bad guys and he's trapped in between and his cell phone goes and he picks it up and he says hello and his mom's just chilling there in her day room with a sunset magazine flipping through and saying oh hi honey yeah the squirrels are back in the attic again and uh, your dad won't call an exterminator because this time he says it's personal and, uh, and he goes mom can I call you back and then the announcer says if you're a mom you call at the worst time it's what you do Now, I have to think, this is the 930 service. This is the one that usually gets recorded. Guarantee this next week, my mom is going to be online in Colorado listening to this. Mom, I know this is not what you do. You're the exception to the rule. But anyway, but if you're a mom, you call at the worst possible time. It's what you do. Um, My other favorite, because I have young kids, uh, and so I've unfortunately been subjected to uh, copious amounts of this show, um, is this this one right here. Oh, again, it's it's me. I can't get used to that. It's like the Shackleton expedition to the Arctic, or actually this is the North Pole. And, and they, all these guys have icicles hanging from their beard and, and they've obviously got, come through a grueling expedition and, and they're just about to stick the flag in the North Pole and you hear, bienvenidos, welcome to the North Pole. And Boots, the monkey says, what took you so long? And the announcer says, if you're Dora the Explorer, you explore, it's what you do. All right, it's what you do. Hang with me here. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Take that off the screen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. 
is where we're picking up here today. And it starts with the word, therefore. Similar to the way Paul writes letters, although sometimes Paul, like Ephesians and Colossians, would spend two chapters or so grounding and reminding Christians of their identity in Christ and what God has done for them through Christ and the promises that come with it. But Paul will usually, at a point in his letter, turn from what is true of them to then a therefore of his own and call them to some sort of living and he'll begin to exhort them. Well, Peter only spends the first 12 verses before he gets to his therefore. And that's where we're at, verse 13, therefore. And we're gonna get three commands in here. The first three things he's going to urge us as Christians. And in a similar way, it's as if Peter is saying, uh, in light of who you are, you are God's pilgrim people who have been redeemed, recipients of uh, amazing grace. Therefore, and he's going to give some commands. And his assumption is, that's what you do. So let me just remind you briefly of your identity if you've trusted Christ. What Peter says is that you are elect exiles. You're chosen by God according to his plans. He drew you to himself, but this world is not your home. The kingdom of this world has not yet become, as it says in Revelation, the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ. It's not that way yet. So we're elect exiles. We're living as sojourners in a foreign land for a time, pilgrims. And we have an inheritance, this imperishable, undefiled, uh, unfading, kept in heaven for us inheritance. And you have a promise from God as your father that he is going to, by his power, guard you through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We've been reminded that as a Christian, you've been sprinkled with his blood. That sounds gross maybe to you if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, but um, pointing all the way back to the, the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses that, that, sh- that taught them that your sin needs to be atoned for and paid for. A holy God cannot tolerate sin, can't excuse it or sweep it under the rug. It must be paid for by death with blood. And so for, for centuries, there was a system of sacrifice where animal would, a, a blemishless animal would be sacrificed and the blood of that animal would atone for your sin. God would count that in your place. But then that blood would be sprinkled on the priest, Aaron and the other priest. That blood would be sprinkled on them, which again sounds gross. But having done this, not only was it saying your sins are forgiven and you have been, God has made you holy, but having been made holy now, you are competent, consecrated ministers to minister to the people of God as priests. And Peter in chapter two is going to call us Christians a royal priesthood. And so this is part of who we are. We are forgiven, um, uh, at peace with God, children and priests. He just keeps piling up in 12 verses who we are. Um, And then in Jackson's passage last week, he sums it up by saying, you are the privileged people who live at a point in history where you are the recipients of what for centuries prophets wrote about and longed to see and angels are now looking at you and your experience of receiving grace from God in this new covenant and the promises God makes and angels long to look into this. They just are in awe of what God's done. You are the recipients of that. And then verse 13, Peter says, therefore, and we get three commands. 
But, and I don't want us to misunderstand the Geico illustration. It's what you do. That's not as if these things come effortless, effortlessly or without thought or, uh, or energy or will. It's not that these things just automatically just grow in the Christian life and we don't even need to think about it. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't be writing this. But I do think he wants us to understand that these commands all do grow out of something that has become true of us. If you really have been born again to a living hope and God's spirit dwells in you, his seed abides in you, you actually now internally bear the seed, the the DNA of your heavenly father, then these things will be what you do if you are God's redeemed pilgrim people. This is what you do. Three exhortations are going to be my main points. Let me rephrase them just to maybe help you remember them. But number one in verse 13 is that if you're part of God's pilgrim people, you keep your hope fixed fully on the finish line. That's what you do. You keep your hope set fully, fixed fully on the finish line. We'll talk about that. Number two in verse 14 and 15, you conform your character and your conduct to your heavenly father. You conform yourself to your heavenly father who loves you and called you out from a life that was futile and empty and meaningless and opposed to God and headed toward death. You now conform your character to your heavenly father who you adore. And third thing that you do is you maintain a healthy fear of your father. You maintain a healthy, appropriate fear of your heavenly father. So that's the three things that Peter says, if you're God's pilgrim people, this is what you do. Let's take them one at a time. Number one, verse 13, you keep your hope fixed fully on the finish line. In verse 13, the finish line, as Peter puts it, is this. Set your hope fully on, here's the finish line, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's think about this for a minute. There is grace that we haven't experienced yet as Christians that when Jesus returns one day and is revealed not just as suffering servant and lamb that was slain, but as righteous reigning returning king and judge Jesus, on that day, he is bringing grace for his people, grace that we haven't received yet. And we've received a lot of grace, haven't we? We've received the full forgiveness of our sins already. The record of our debt that stood against us with all its demands has been canceled, nailed to the cross, Paul says in Colossians. His abiding presence now in our life by God's spirit who dwells in us, guides us and comforts us and encourages us and teaches us and convicts us of sin. That's a grace of God we already have. And we can pray in Jesus' name anytime, anywhere, for anything confidently because our Father's throne of grace is open to us and, and we can ask for mercy and help in time of need and he invites us to it. This is a grace we already have and God has promises to us that he is going to work all things according to our good for those who are called uh, and are uh, loved by God and called according to his purposes. So there's lots of grace we already have but Peter says there is a grace that Jesus is going to bring with him for us on the day that uh, he's revealed. There's greater grace ahead. One of the most stunning descriptions of this grace is in Ephesians 2.7. Let me just read this one verse for you. Ephesians 2.7, after Paul has said that you who were dead in your sins, you were dead 
You were children of wrath. God made you alive together with Christ. He stepped in like that illustration, went down into the cave that was caving in and he pulled you up and he rescued you out and he made you alive together with Christ. Here's the end game. Here's why God did that. Verse seven. So that in the coming ages, which are eternal, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let that sentence sink in for a second. God's end game for forgiving your sins through Jesus and causing you to be born again to a living hope is so that in the coming ages eternally you could be shown how immeasurably rich God is in grace and unmerited kindness and favor not toward good people who deserve that but toward sinful people who didn't deserve it. Think about it like this. God is spirit, so he doesn't uh, physically have a body. Jesus has a body. But God doesn't have a, a literal desktop calendar. But I was thinking about picturing a giant desktop calendar on God's desktop where he has all his plans laid out for future, right? And there is an actual day in an actual square on God's desktop calendar that says in it, Jesus returns. Yes, and that's going to be on our calendar. That's going to be an actual day or night or some moment in history where Jesus is going to return. So that's on God's calendar. Jesus returns. Go get him. Probably underlined and circled and exclamation points. And you know what's in every single square after that on God's eternal desktop calendar? What do we do today? Show my children the immeasurable riches of my grace in kindness toward them. Next day, what are we doing today? Showing the immeasurable riches of my grace in kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day into eternity. That's God's eternal plan for you. I was thinking, Bill Gates is about the richest man that I'm aware of. There might be someone who actually has more money than him, but he's the one we all know about. And what if Bill Gates called you Today, you got home, you got a voicemail message, you return it. It's Bill Gates. And he says, I've decided I want to show you the immeasurable riches of my bank account. I want you to know how rich I am. And you might say, well, I know how rich you are. You're like the, you know, the number one richest person in the world. I read it in, in the newspaper. No, no, no. I want you to know it by me showing it to you in spending it all on you. That's how I want you to know it. I intend to show you the immeasurable riches of my bank account by spending it on you day after day after day. You'd be blown away, wouldn't you? And God says, that's his plan, but not with money, with his own personal fatherly kindness and love. And that's gonna take place in a context, in a new heavens and new earth that have been made new and they, they have no rot or resist, uh, corruption or decay or disease or any, any uh, brokenness at all, including you, children of God. You will be resurrected and your body that's wearing out right now, I'm all looking out at all of you, you're all in varying stages of disrepair and wearing out. I'm almost 45 and I feel it more every day. Um, your perishable body will be replaced with an imperishable one that can enjoy this new 
new earth and God in a way to the fullest extent without wearing out and your mind that's perishable right now and you have senior moments and forgetful and, and, and there's things that you've learned that you've forgotten and it won't wear out anymore. You'll be able to learn and grow and know God more fully and clearly into eternity forever and there won't be suffering anymore. There won't be pain anymore. There'll be no more tears. I think that means tears of pain because there's a lot of times that tears come to me with joy and awe. I think those tears will be in heaven, but tears of sadness and regret uh, and sorrow and fear gone. C.S. Lewis in the last book in his Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, he's, 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 He's telling a story that parallels the, God, the, the, the big story of the Bible. And you get to the end of the last battle and the main characters are being issued, are entering into glory with Aslan. He's leading them into this sort of new Narnia, which is kind of the, a vision of the new heavens and new earth that we really will be in one day. And, and he, as author, describes to us as readers at the close of the book like this. He says, the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, the readers, this is the end of all the stories and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. What he's doing there is he's trying to help our minds picture something glorious that's unlike any glory we've seen and, and is yet to come and for us to, to yearn for that. When Jesus returns, he is bringing an eternity of grace in kindness toward us. And Peter says right here in this first command, if you're God's redeemed pilgrim people, you fix your hope fully on that finish line. You order your life in a posture toward that that's looking singularly to that to motivate your life. When it comes to hope, Peter's saying, don't diversify. He says, set your hope fully on the grace. Anyone in here doing financial investment counseling or, or such, either, either officially or informally? You know, a good financial counselor will probably tell you, unless you're really desperate and you got to make money fast, the wise thing to do with your money is to diversify it, Right? Don't just put it all in one stock or all in one fund. Put some here and some here and some here. That way, you know, if one kind of tanks, this other one, you're okay. But Peter says, no, no, no. When it comes to the hope of your life, don't diversify it. Don't spread it out over a whole bunch of other things. There's only one hope, one future reality that is strong enough to, to support your hope all the way to the end. And that's this hope right here. He says, don't spread it out. Hope fully, um, let me give you an illustration, another visual here. Uh-oh, somebody stole my, oh, Andrew Brain stealing my other. All right, let's imagine this right here is the grace that's coming to you when Jesus returns. This is, is that, that future reality. You can name this one. This is any number of hundreds of thousands of things that in our life we set some of our hope on. And we say, I can be joyful, I can be happy, I can be content if I have this out in the future for me and this right now. So here's hope right here. 
is bored. And this is what we all are prone to do, even still as Christians, right? We want our life to be happy and joyful. And so part of that's good. We have this great hope out here, but we also really would like to just put some of our hope here. Maybe it's on, you know, a, a, a graduate degree or an undergrad degree or a, an accomplishment or a job or a, a, or a, a raise or a, a spouse or children or grandchildren or physical help or freedom from physical pain and discomfort see what we do. We all do this. And then we live our life like this and we rest the weight of our hope. You're worried about this board. It's really thick. It's going to hold me. (laughs) We rested on some, some of each. But the problem that Peter would say is this. None of these things here are guaranteed, right? Not one of them. They may come or go. God is God. And and we don't know. We talked a couple of weeks ago about trials that God sees as necessary to refine faith. And sometimes that comes in the form of of messing with the other things that we're tempted to rest some of our hope on. And Peter says, don't do that. He says, I want your hope right here fully on this. Not that we should not care about anything in this world. These things are good. Blessings from God, a wife, children, a house, comfort, physical health that you should be thankful for as long as you have it, right? We can enjoy these things, but just don't set your hope, the weight of your hope on it, is what Peter's saying. That way, whenever this goes, that might be painful, but your hope is unshaken, is what Peter would say. Because your hope's fully here and your confidence is here. So he says, set your hope fully on this. Um, Where did Peter learn to talk like this? Well, he's, we, we were just in the Gospel of Mark for a year and a half. We heard a number of times that Peter was with Jesus when he would teach. This one's actually from the Gospel of Luke. Turn to Luke 12 for a moment. Peter, who was slow to, to learn a lot of things, by the time he's writing this letter of 1 Peter, he has learned some things from Jesus. Some things make better sense to him and are clearer, and he wants us to know them. And I have no doubt this is the sort of teaching of Jesus that Peter has in his mind when he talks like this to us in verse 13. Listen to this from Luke 12. He's teaching his disciples, and he's really, he, he's exhorting them not to get all, con- fr- uh, fret, don't fret and be consumed and anxious about all all of these day-to-day needs in your life. Listen, Luke 12, 22, Jesus says to his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food. The body's more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, and yet they have neither storehouse or barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink or be worried. All the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. 
Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Just pause right there. So there's a seeking of his kingdom. There's put your eyes here. Don't worry about these things here. And he's not saying that these things are not important. He actually encourages you. Your father knows you need them and he'll provide for your needs. Sometimes you might have a thing you think you need and God doesn't and that might be a problem. But he says, your beloved heavenly father who loves you and you're precious to, he'll, he'll meet these things. He'll take care of your needs. You seek God's kingdom. Set your hope there. Let's keep reading. Verse 32. He says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Loosen your grip on the stuff of this right now, he says. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old and a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you see how how Peter's saying the same thing? Money bags that don't grow old and treasure in heaven that doesn't fail. Sounds like 1 Peter, doesn't it? imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And set your hope there sounds a lot like where your treasure is. Put your treasure there on that stool right there, that future glory, future grace. And then in light of this, the last few verses, Jesus turns to his disciples and gives them a therefore. This is then therefore in light of you being his beloved flock that he cares about. Therefore, verse 35, Jesus says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamp burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they might open the door at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Even if he comes in the second or third watch, even if it's a long delay, and he finds them awake, blessed are those servants. That's just what Peter says, isn't it? Look at the beginning here again of uh, 1 Peter 13. How do we set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought? We prepare our minds for action and we're sober-minded. We stay alert and awake and focused. We employ our minds to strengthen our hope. Let's look at these two phrases, preparing your minds for action. That's just a a way in English to say what literally Peter says, girding up the loins of your mind. I I don't love that phrase, girding up loins. But here's a picture visual for you if you uh, need it. Looks like this. If you were a man back then and you had your flowing robes down to here and all of a sudden you needed to run away from an enemy or get involved in a battle or do some heavy lifting, you didn't want all those robes hanging around down there. So what do you do? You pull them up above your uh, hairy, you know, Israeli legs right there and you tuck it, gather it like this and you do this sort of move, pulling it to the back, looks uncomfortable. And then you wrap it around and you tuck it into your belt and you get it all up out of the way. So then, ah, you know, you're ready for action, right? Your legs are unencumbered. It's a, it's a very visual, vivid uh, metaphor, isn't it? He says, put your mind in that position. <laughs> That's weird. How, how do I do this, Peter, right? Unencumber your mind with things that trip you up and distract you and clutter and drown out what you really need to focus on. Think of Hebrews, laying aside everything that encumbers and sin that so easily entangles so that I might run the race. Peter says, put your mind in a ready position. Fill it with truth. Clear out lies. Unclutter your life 
of busyness, which goes hand in hand with the next one. Be sober-minded. It's the opposite of drunk or under the influence or dull or numb or drowsy or lethargic or apathetic. How many more words? Anesthetized. And, and this world has all kinds of neutral or even good things that we can just pack in so much that our minds aren't sober, they're numb. And Peter says, you don't want to do that. You need an alert, sober mind if you're going to set your hope fully on God. So here's the question for you. What is it? And it's different for different ones of us. What numbs your mind to the realities? Let's get that off the screen. You know, you keep looking at that. What numbs your mind to these realities that you're to fix your hope on. This last week, the Lord just nailed me, really showed me. For th- this season of my life, Netflix can numb my mind. And not just the content of certain things that I might watch, but, but just the volume. We live in an age now where there's a recent, recent phenomenon, a, a word, binge watching. That's a thing now, binge watching. It used to be that you'd have to wait around on TV for some marathon day of whatever the show and then they'd do it. But now on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime, they'll just give it to you all at once and you can just... So as a dad with young kids, it, it can be easy, tempting for the day's finish line to be get the oldest kid finally in bed, get my cozy pants on, get on the couch, get the remote and just, just consume entertainment. It's tempting. You might in your heart be ready to jump to my defense. Now, hold on. We all need downtime and there's a place for vegging out. Don't get all legalistic about me. Don't start making lists of all the things that we're not supposed to do. That's not my point. But, but you don't have to tell me that argument. My heart raises that counter argument. As soon as I start thinking, I wonder if I need to dial back my Netflix watching. Instantly, my heart's thinking, no, 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 there's really good reasons for this. And you, need, you know, that's probably an indicator that I know it numbs my mind. So I don't know what it is for you, but it's worth asking. It's worth talking about at Grace Group. What numbs your mind and dulls your your mind toward these realities that we're supposed to set our hope fully on? If you're one of God's redeemed pilgrim people, you fix your hope fully on that finish line. Number two, these will be a little bit less time than that. It's how I usually work. That first point gets all the attention. And then number two and three, we got to craze, go through. Number two, you conform your character and conduct to your heavenly father, verses 14 and 15. He, Peter says, be holy. That's a simpler way to say it. But I want to say, say it like this. You conform your character and your conduct to your heavenly father. Why? Three, three observations about this command. Number one is that the command to be holy is grounded in our new birth. It's grounded in being born again. Look at what it says, verse 14. As obedient children, don't be conformed to passions of former ignorance, but be holy. As obedient children, or in verse 15 or 16, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God, your heavenly father, who's caused you to be born again, his seed now abides in you as the holy one. Therefore, you be holy for I am holy and you're my child now. There's a new influence and power at work in you as a born-again believer. God's Spirit is at work convicting of sin and, and, and guiding and correcting and, and, and leading with Spirit's desires, Paul says in Galatians. There's still spirit desires of the flesh, but there's desires of the Spirit now so that God's commands don't just sound like a burden, but God's commands actually speak to something in my heart, desires I have that I want to fulfill. So be holy shouldn't make us go, oh, that sounds so burdensome. But the call to be holy should speak to something in our heart because we are children born of God. 
Second thing about holiness here, holy conduct doesn't happen effortlessly. There's a negative side to this command. He starts by saying, do not be conformed to your former uh, passions or passions of your former ignorance, but be holy. When you're born again, the gravitational pull of sin on you doesn't go away. You probably know this. So anger doesn't go away and just dissolve because you're born again. And self-absorption doesn't go away. It continues to pull and lust continues to pull on your mind or laziness or envy and coveting in your heart of others. That desire doesn't just go away. It continues to pull. Greed and stinginess and selfishness and just let's pile them up. All these, these passions, Peter says, those are ignorant. That's part of the, the, the you that died with Christ. They still pull. And Peter says we are to resist them actively. Resist temptation. Flee from sin. Fight it. Say no. Exercise your will and say, I, I want to do that right now, but I won't. And some of you I know right now are feeling uneasy about that. You're going, oh, I don't like when we talk about effort in the Christian life. That doesn't sound like grace. Sounds like earning. But it doesn't have to. Listen to this. This is Dallas Willard. He just died a few years ago. He was a Christian professor of philosophy at USC and an author. And he wrote this in, in one book, and then I, I heard him say it on more than one occasion. He said, it's crucial to realize that grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning Earning is an attitude. Earning is a, the way, I, I want to secure some wages from God because of my behavior. No, no, no. He says, without effort though, we'd be nowhere. When you read the New Testament, you see how astonishingly energetic it is. Peter is saying the grace of God ought to lead to an energetic effort to resist sin and an energetic effort to also be conformed to the character of our Father. And this is the third observation I want to make is that God's holiness isn't just the ground of our holiness. It's not the, the source of holiness that begins to grow in us. But Peter also says, God's holiness is our pattern for holiness. We are to imitate our heavenly father. I think that when he says uh, in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. He's talking about imitation there. Not just be holy because God is holy, be holy as he is holy, in the same manner in which your heavenly father is holy in his character and then his conduct, you be like him. New Testament doesn't shy away of, of flat out saying, imitate God, copy your heavenly father, watch him and then act like that. And it doesn't have to be fake or pretend or superficial. It can be, so don't do that. But there is a genuine way that we're, Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. If your heavenly father is perfect and perfectly praiseworthy and, and you adore him, shouldn't it be the most natural thing as we see his character and behold his glory that something in us would desire, I want to be like dad. I want to be like my father. There was a, a wedding in here just yesterday, Caleb Parker and Maddie Rhodes, now uh, Maddie Parker, many of you know them. Um, it was a beautiful wedding, but it was unique in this, at least for me, I've seen a lot of weddings before where either the groom's dad or the bride's dad was a pastor and officiated, but Caleb and Maddie's dads are both pastors and they co-officiated and it was beautiful. You, can t we, you could tell in the ceremony, even if you didn't know their family, that first, that their dads are 
godly, imitating Christ sort of dads and pastors. And you could tell it because you could see it in Caleb and Maddie's face and the delight that they both had that both their dads were there officiating this. You could see, and, and I, if you know Caleb and Maddie, I know aspects of their character that I, as I met their dads and saw, you could see, oh, that comes from, that comes from your mom, doesn't it, Maddie? That comes from your dad, Caleb. They, there's a resemblance there that's grown because they've imitated their dads. How much more so with our perfect, holy, heavenly father as born again children would we want to copy our father and look to him? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, this is actually how it happens in our life. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding our heavenly father, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Little by little as we look at our Heavenly Father and we keep our eyes on Him and His holiness and what He hates and what He loves, we conform to that. And it's not just in attitude, but then our conduct. Peter says, in all your conduct, be holy. If you're one of God's redeemed pilgrim people, you conform your character to your Father. That's number two. And last, number three, uh, you maintain a healthy fear of your Heavenly Father. A healthy fear. You know, not all fear is bad. You might, you know, hear him say, conduct yourselves with fear. That seems weird because for 12 verses, Peter has been piling up reasons why this should take away fear, right? According to God's great mercy, you've been caused to be born again. He feels great mercy toward you. You've been sprinkled with blood. You've been promised an inheritance. Grace is coming to you when Jesus comes back. You can guarantee it and you can count on it such that you can place all your hope there. You'd think, well, certainly then there's no room for fear. And then right after this in verse 18, he says, you know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways of your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ. Then what room is there to fear? Well, Peter grounds the fear in two realities. Look at verse 17. First, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. In other words, don't forget who your father is. Don't misunderstand. Don't allow the, the thought that God is my father to mean that suddenly God is, this, is just soft on sin and just, a, oh, shucks. I, he doesn't like, care about it anymore. He is the holy, righteous, impartial judge who will one day judge all men's deeds e- evenly according to the same holy standard. That's your heavenly father, he says. And secondly, right after this command, verse 18, he says, don't forget what your sin cost. He says, knowing you were ransomed from your futile life, your empty, meaningless, headed to death life, not by money, but by the precious blood of God's innocent son in your place, Christ, like a lamb without blemish. Do you understand what your sin cost for God to forgive? Does that make you understand how ugly it is and how um, uh, evil your sin is? So then the question is, how should we think about this sort of fear that the, the Christian, that the child of God ought to live out of? Well, I think it's helpful to think of what the opposite would be of conducting yourself with fear. Living a life, your life with a, a sense of holy reverence and fear that God, your father, is also judge. What would the opposite of that be? And I actually want your feedback. What sort of life would be the opposite of conduct yourselves with fear? 
Recklessness. That's the same word in the first service. It's like it was planted. But yeah, recklessly. What else? Huh? Pridefully. Yeah, what else? Presumption. Yeah. With an attitude like Paul imagines someone who might think, might actually reason and say, you know, um, let me find it here. Are we to sin because we're not under law anymore, but under grace? Is that what that means? If I'm under grace and God's my father, does that mean I can sin more? And Peter's saying, if that's your attitude, you better fear. The fatherhood of God doesn't give you license suddenly not to concern yourself with his holiness or sin. In fact, if that's the attitude of your heart, Peter, I think, would say, you better fear and tremble. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. John Calvin said this, this is pretty succinct. It is faith alone that justifies. Yes, it's faith alone by which you're declared righteous uh, according to God, Jesus' sacrifice for you. But he says, the faith that justifies is not alone. What he means, that real, genuine faith that, ca- that, that comes about in the new birth, it is not alone. It, it is enjoined by and evidenced by a growing awareness of sin that's like God sees sin and a growing apprehension of God's holiness that's as God sees holiness. And so therefore, if your attitude as a Christian is cavalier or trivializes or minimizes or even excuses sin, Peter says, I think is saying, fear that. I love this. The, the best uh, paraphrase of, of that command, conduct yourselves with fear that I read this last week was this by John Piper. He said, fear treating the blood of Jesus and the fatherhood of God as trash. Because that's what he's just reminded you of. Your heavenly father has redeemed you at great personal cost of his own son and his precious blood. And so Piper says, fear treating those things as trash. That's what living with a trivial, you know, justifying, you know, dismissive um, attitude toward your sin and toward the holiness of God would be. He says, if cozying up with the sins for which the father sent his son to die is ever tempting to you, run with all your might the other direction. That's a bad sign, he would say, of what is in your heart. He says, lest you find yourself in bed with the very things that slaughtered the son of God. Fear trashing the ransom and trashing the blood and trashing the fatherhood of God. That attitude has no part in the life of redeemed, born again, pilgrim people of God. If you're one of God's people, you maintain healthy fear for your heavenly father and you conform your character to his. And you, and, and you don't try to make this life, squeeze all of heaven into this life, but you set your hope fully on the grace he's going to bring very soon. It's what you do. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that this would, even because we just gathered here this morning and we're reminded of these things, that each of these commands, I pray, are speaking to desires in our heart that we want to say yes to. I pray that this would be in our lives from one degree to another what we do. And I pray that as that happens, as you, um, as you sanctify us through the washing of water of your word, that one day when Jesus comes back, we'll be ready. We'll be presented to you as a pure spotless bride. Thank you for the grace in which we stand. Help us to walk in it, we pray in Jesus' name.